Today on Rewrite Radio, Dr. Anbara Salam teaches us more about the human interest in cults, how they're represented, and how they reveal our deepest vulnerabilities and anxieties. My name is Heidi Grunboom, and I'm a senior student fellow at the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing. Dr. Anbara Salam works as an academic at the University of Oxford, where she also earned her PhD in 2014. Salam researches contemporary apocalyptic belief, focusing especially on exorcism, death cults, and American evangelical Christian movements. Her first novel, Things Bright and Beautiful, draws on her own experience working on the remote island of Melanesia. And now, on Bar Salam from the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing. This is is Rewrite Radio, Radio, a a podcast from the This is Rewrite Radio. (laughs) This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. So, um, where shall I begin? Um, I'm from the UK. I just flew over yesterday. I've got a little bit of plain brain, so um, be gentle with me. And if... uh, If the talk is terrible, then it's entirely the fault of my um, jet lag and nothing to do with me. Uh, This is also the first time I've been to this conference, and since I'm in the first session, I'm in the unenviable position of not really having been to any other presentations. So um, I quickly, before I came here, took out the pop quiz on French post-structuralists that you're all going to get halfway through. (laughs) Right, so um, there's also a cable here. I'm going to try not to slip over. Right, so um, my, I live in Oxford with my partner, and we don't argue much, but uh, recently we've started arguing about murder. Um, not murder in general, but in the last two years I've developed a kind of weird appetite for true crime. So um, my preference is for a kind of American, you guys do it really well, um, <laughs> in England, it's all just like old ladies poisoning people. But I like American, it's kind of like 1990s, really grainy, you know, that like shadowy font. Um, and it's called things like secrets and lies and like revenge and repentance or something like that. Um, I listen to true crime podcasts. I read books about FBI profiling in the bath. I don't know where it came from. But according to my partner, um, this like, constant background noise of autopsies is like really off-putting. Who knew? <laughs> um, but one weekend, I was left to my own devices, and I um, found myself watching 12, um, 12 installments of a grainy 1990s documentary about uh, murder. 12. And I thought, I really have to take a look at myself, what's happening here. Um, and I started to think about what has prompted this interest in true crime, um, particularly because I'm not really that interested in violence or gore. I can't even watch people you know, being injected on house. You know, I can't look at that stuff. So where does it come from? And after um, talking to some of my fellow madrinos, what I've settled on yep, is that true crime is kind of like a neat package um, of all of the extremes of human emotion. It secrets and lies it's revenge and repentance. And the stories explore kind of everyday vulnerabilities against these big backdrops like you know, love, jealousy, um, grief, the search for retribution and for answers. It's, it's the extreme stuff of life but wrapped up in a mystery flavored with like a perverse justification for my own social anxiety. 
So I understand that it's, it is still a bit morbid, but I, um, here's where I ask you not to judge and to consider your own late night um, Wikipedia searches that you might not want sent to the work printer. Um, <laughs> my sister-in-law is really obsessed with parasites. Um, my brother loves to read about conspiracy theories. I, I don't know where these obsessions come from. But this is where we come to the topic of cults. Because in my experience, cults are kind of like the acceptable face of morbid fascination. My doctorate was on um, contemporary apocalyptic um, belief, and it may be not very safe for a career decision, as my parents are constantly telling me, um, but at least it's going to be a lifelong gift for dinner time conversation because everybody wants to talk about cults. Even people in cults like to hear about cults. So my novel's also just been published last week. That's it there. Um, things writing beautiful. Um, we had a really nice introduction already about it, but it's set in the 1950s, and it's about a couple who find themselves living um, in a village in d under the influence of a local cult leader. And um, this is drawn from my own experiences of living in Melanesia um, in a similar environment, and really helpfully I put in asterisk, say something about being in a cult here. So thanks, thanks me. Um, uh, what can I say? Yes, um, this is my old island home. I was going to put a picture of myself in there, but I looked really depressed, and I thought you guys don't need to see that. Um, basically, I was living on a small island in the South Pacific, and uh, it turned out that it was under the influence of a local cult leader who believed that women's bodies were particularly susceptible to inhabitation by um, demons and devils and spirits that lived in the jungle surrounding the village. So um, what he, he was on a sort of campaign of taking young women, young unmarried women, um, which included myself, into the chapel um, and exorcising them, um, sort of performing rituals uh, on them, uh, forcibly in some cases, um, every evening and for months and months. So not, not, not great fun. Um, and that's what has added to my, um, part of those experiences have gone into my novel. So um, I have got a doctorate in apocalyptic movements, I was accidentally in a cult, and I've written a book about cults, so you can definitely say that I'm guilty of this um, strange obsession as well. So, mm. right, so what is a cult? Um, I'm wearing two hats today because obviously I'm a kind of private citizen who's written the book, but I also have a doctorate in um, theology, so when I'm using the word cult, I know this is not really what we would call it if we were an anthropologist. Um, and if this was an anthropology conversation, we'd be talking about new religious movements. So I'm, I want everyone to know that I'm completely aware of that. I'm using the term cult here because I actually want to talk about some of the kind of pejorative connotations that come along with that use of that word. So it's deliberate. So there's lots of definitions of what constitute a cult. What's the next slide? Okay, there we go. Um, but we often understand cults as a kind of as a social group that practices maybe a novel form of spirituality uh, focused around a particular personality. But the liquidity of this term um, lends itself to fiction because gifted storytellers can take us right up to that line between normal and weird and explore the kind of the magnetic personalities of those gurus who are so lure unbelievers into their orbit. Um, so apologies, uh, anthropology disclaimer. So in the 1970s, um, these two sociologists, Rodney Stark and William Bainbridge, wrote, uh, some, came up with a model 
of, for the emergence of new religious movements, which is helpful for me to briefly introduce now because I'll talk about them later. So firstly is um, the psychopathology model, which stresses how um, groups tend to legitimate the mentally deviant perspectives of their leaders, thereby initiating a shared malaise with those involved who mistake the products of their own minds for external realities. The second model imagines cult leaders um, as entrepreneurs, those who benefit monetarily, sexually, or by any other means from the credulity of their followers. And actually, I, di I did obviously research for this um, talk, but I did some, I was interested to see what came up. I just said through the words cult into Google and the cult leader and that kind of stuff. And weirdly on Amazon, there's so many books. If you type in cult leader, all of these books about management strategies and how like, you should, CEOs could model themselves on um, cult leaders in order to um, maximize loyalty and allegiance. Really quite, really quite interesting. And the last is a model of subculture evolution, which um, proposes an idea of implosion. So where social ties inside the movement are tightened at the expense of those in the outside world. Um, so what this does is create a kind of portrait of cult formation where increasing isolation from the mainstream results in a stifling atmosphere. Where cut off from social reality and utterly convinced of the authority of their charismatic leaders, members are seen as um, invariably substituting their own psychological or social representations for what is true. Now, again, as an anthropologist, I'm not completely convinced by this, um, this uh, model, but it's definitely really useful when we consider the kind of portraits that we see of cults in fiction. So, okay. In a way, um, fiction about cults, I think, is always a med meditation on the idea of the other. Has anyone read the book The Gulls? Okay. So The Girls is a fictionalized account of a, a young woman who uh, is sort of on the fringes of essentially what is the Manson family. She doesn't actually describe it as that, but it's loosely based, well, it's very closely based on um, the Manson family and that woman's participation in the Tate LaBianca murders. Um, and that's quite an interesting um, example because it's using an intermediary character as our way in. And it sets up kind of a strange dynamic as a reader because actually to move the narrative forward, the character has to join the cult. So as a reader, we're put in quite a difficult position. On one hand, you know, from, I guess, a moral perspective, we want to see the character, we want to see the protagonist resist. On the other hand, we find ourselves almost hoping that they're going to join. Um, we want them to achieve their aim, and we want the narrative satisfaction of the, of the character achieving their goal. This means that we're kind of inhabiting a really weird mindset when we read about um, fictional characters joining cults, especially when um, those cults are real. So, for example, in Girls or uh, White Knight's Black Paradise, I don't know if anyone's read that. Again, that's very closely based on Jonestown. So, to create social cohesion, cult movements often perpetuate the idea that a participant has to let go of their previous personality and become reborn in the new ideals of the group, um, becoming a kind of vassal for the ideology of their new leader. Um, so what, what, what we find ourselves as a reader is kind of watching or willing the character's conversion. And this conversion um, is what we understand is like a radical transformation of identity or orientation. 
obviously there's a lot of debate amongst scholars about conversion itself. How does that happen? Is this a sudden, is it really a sudden transformational moment? Is it multiple steps that result in a shift in orientation? Um, there's still some sort of debate about that. But of course in fiction we see that collapsed into, um, well, we're working with a very limited time scale. We don't have time to take us to the extensive psychosocial dynamics of an individual joining a new uh, religious movement. So this kind of creates a really interesting dynamic when we're looking at a reader. As a reader, we're looking at a character who's on the fringes of a movement because essentially the character that we're getting to know, if they do achieve their aim and they do join this new group, they actually have their personality is going to be transformed. It has to be if they're going to successfully integrate. So this concept of kind of willing self-destruction, I think, is, is sort of alluring but also repulsive. Um, to Western culture, and the best moment, I think the best fiction about cults captures that moment of sort of tension and resistance, um, the resistance to that seduction, um, especially when they focus on that sort of moment of transformation, because that sort of process of cracking yourself open and becoming willing to transform is often a kind of, um, it's a consequence of vulnerability rather than the other way around, right, because otherwise fiction depicts particularly vulnerable people who are susceptible, but I, I think it's probably the other way around as well. Okay. Oh, he's kind of poor, you can't see that, it's from Buffy. Okay, so David Ketterer, who's a literary theorist, um, has suggested, sorry, it's a long passage, the apocalyptic imagination might be defined in terms of its philosophical preoccupation with that moment of juxtaposition and transformation where an old world of mind encounters a new world of mind that either nullifies and destroys the old system or makes it part of a larger design. So what he's arguing is essentially like that clash between two opposing worldviews, that radical transformation is actually essentially, it's apocalyptic. He's saying that it catalyzes moments of great change, destruction, and revelation. And fiction about cults is kind of at its most powerful and it uses these tensions, this moment of potential transformation. Has anyone read the book, The Power? No? Okay, cool, because I'm about, I was going to trash it, but you guys haven't read it, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really enjoy it. Um, I'm going to move on since someone's read it. But um, this juxtaposition between the apparent world and the revealed message and the tension that lies between the consummation of one and the other, I think leads to a really important role for such fictions, which is the, obviously the power of transformation from within, but also within the community. So the community of believers is the kind of all-important focus of science fiction and apocalyptic alike, obviously fiction about cults. They're the elite who have the special status of comprehending the world around them, the truth, the real truth of the world around them. The community in this way is a kind of manifestation of both hope and crisis, symbolizing a comfort in the protection of others and a reaction to the terrifying otherness of that world. So I think often we see that the escape that's so often um, cited as the appeal of apocalyptic isn't like an escape from the harsh realities of a harsh world, but an escape into a believing community. So Robert um, Putnam, who's the sociologist in 2002, wrote this book called um, Bowling Alone, where he argues that we've sort of seen a radical social decline in 
that sort of social participation that he sees as healthy for both as individuals and societies. And the title comes from, like, in the 1970s, two-thirds of Americans are part of a bowling club and now only one-third are. So that's 2002. I don't know what he'd say now. It's probably even less. Um, he blames this on all kinds of usual things like television and suburbanization um, and unstable job market and stuff like that. But what he does point out is that um, simplistic reassertion of notions like tradition and community and local or national identity can also have reactionary negative political implications. And he gives the example of the Ku Klux Klan um, as a negative implication of that kind of bonding rhetoric when it goes wrong. And what he does is he creates this model of two different kinds of communities, exclusive and inclusive. So he says inclusive communities are positive. They're open, flexible, egalitarian, and tolerant. Sounds lovely. Uh, they have bridging social capital that they generate provides greater levels of particular human contentment. Yeah, sounds great. Exclusive community, he says, through their insistence that membership of the community is conferred by factors that are non-negotiable, so race, gender, for example, they um, they're they contribute inferior forms of social capital. So he's creating good, he's creating this like models of good and bad communities, basically. And this idea of kind of good communities and bad communities, um, based on their levels of exclusion or inclusion, absolutely plays into the fictional concept, the way that we imagine cults, because in a way that they're us, but they're also not us. So I want to argue in that way that kind of, I think cults are kind of the epitome of contemporary uncanny. They're what we consider people who can like pass as normal um, in public, but whose private devotions disclose an allegiance to the esoterical, the weird, unusual. And the best portrayal of cults in fiction asks, what does it mean to be socially transgressive? And they challenge readers. Like, if, you're, if our circumstances were different, what kind of decisions might we make? Fiction about cults um, allows us to explore what kind of emotional bonds attract people and what psychological pressures keep you within the movement, even if you have your doubts. Um, on the one hand, you know, inside a cult, your everyday cares are pretty unimportant against this a grand eschatological drama that's unfolding. I mean, if nothing else, an alien apocalypse is like a relief from your tax return, right? Um, but fictional cults never really show that relief, actually. Um, instead, they sort of demonstrate that the answer to the tension between individual agency and the dynamics of, humi of, of humanity are can't be answered by collective communal sensibility. Instead, it's the dominant will of a charismatic leader. The leader, these kind of narratives um, explain, answer the, the yearning of their followers and unburdens them of free will until they're all immunized against the language of self. And the orientation of the cult towards a sort of mass singularity rather than plurality of dialogue is basically constitutes a kind of malleable crowd rather than a dynamic good community. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so in the navigation between the kind of humdrum and the divine and the individual and the collective um, and this contrast between the kind of mundane and the eschatological, um, this is right the center of fiction about cults. 
So there's this guy, Frederick Krudiger, who's um, a scholar from the 1980s, who's now very unfashionable, but I love him. Um, he says that while utopia endures as an ideal plan, it fails miserably for a story. Neither, neither is it possible to make utopia a livable, inhabitable place. The dull stories of utopian societies in which nothing happens mirror the dull society in which nothing happens. And I think he's completely right, actually. Um, utopia is probably one of the most boring <coughs> stories, models you could ever read, personally. I think when you read um, books that are set in a perfect world, you get pretty tired pretty quickly. Um, and in fact, that's where we readers of sort of fiction about cults, we find the most uncanny. So in the sort of so-called utopia of what we understand to be culturally abnormal. So if you think about, does anyone read Gather the Daughters? No? Okay, well, it's like essentially the kind of boringness of cult life is actually what we find quite creepy. It's not the pomp and circumstance of science fiction um, or apocalyptic. It's so much more subtle and threatening than that. So... Um, what is it, then, about cults that lends itself to a particular kind of unease when we think about fiction? And I really, really struggle to think of any books where somebody joins a cult and then their lives, like, fantastically transform for the better. <laughs> I don't think it exists. I think there's a reason for that. Um, cults are often presented as somewhat kind of retrograde. So in fictional cults, such as Gather the Daughters of the Handmaid Tale, on the left, that's Kimmy Schmidt um, in the bunker, their not-so-subtle reminder that appeals to tradition can often be, um, as a means to achieve social cohesion, can often mask an agenda based on domination and submission. Right. Um, Thomas Robbins, uh, again, acknowledges that uh, cult communities can provide their members with a sense of communal belonging that's supposedly missing from mainstream society. However, what he claims is that uh, movements centered around the appeal of charismatic individuals are liable to become locked into a very erratic trajectory culminating in sensational violence. Um, and I really struggle with how to address that because, of course, in some levels, yes, as we know that that's true, right? We've all consumed those narratives. We know those stories. Um, if you're 30 or above, uh, then you know you probably remember uh, uh, things that you've seen in the news. Um, we all know what's happened with you know the Branch Davidians or Heaven's Gate, these very publicised events, really tragic events. So of course, yes, that's true. We know, in a sense, that that is true. But actually, I find it. Re I think it's very generous in a way to acknowledge to contend that. Um, the reason that culturally we find cults so sort of threatening or creepy or whatever is because um, because they're doomed to inevitable destruction. I don't think that's the reason why. I'm not convinced by that. Um, if the dangerousness, maybe it's a poor analogy, but if the dangerousness of um, if, if some if something's dangerousness was what made us afraid of it, why aren't we all terrified getting into our cars in the morning? It just, I just don't think it works. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by that argument. Um, especially because uh, if we think about like, real-life believers in new religious movements, I just don't think it's fair to, to say that you know, rationality, that these participants are not engaging their rational faculties when they're invested in these movements at all. 
And I think what's really interesting, actually, is how um, hard fiction about cults works to explain religious beliefs as a mask for something more fundamental, social, economic, or political, or as a reflection of psychological needs. So this is what we're seeing, right? We're seeing faith here, faith in your cult, as a mask for domination or submission for political agendas. And of course, yes, I mean, we know that this also happens. But fundamentally, novels about um, cults are books about faith, aren't they? I but they're not. Fiction about cults tells us very little about faith. They tell us very little about what it really feels like to believe. So I don't think that this dangerous cult trajectory actually explains why um, fiction works so hard to create ominous cult movements. Um, okay, so um, C.S. Lewis, um, in his essay collection on stories, he's talking about um, horror, and he gives this really long definition of horror, which I think is quite useful, so I'm just going to read it. Um, like horror and fear. He says, different kinds of danger strike different chords in the imagination. This fear which is a twin sister to awe, such as a man in wartime feels when he first comes within sound of the guns. Actually, he's using a man all the way through, so I'm going to substitute woman. Um, there is a fear which is a twin sister to disgust, such as a woman feels, on finding a snake or scorpion in their bedroom. He says there are taut, quivering fears, a bit like a pleasurable thrill that you might feel on a dangerous horse or on a dangerous sea. And he talks about dead, squashed, flattening, numbing fears, like when you think you might have cholera. I mean, personally, I, could, I can't speak for cholera, but I do understand what he's saying there. There are also fears which are not of danger at all. Like, for example, um, the fear of a hideous, even though it's innocuous, insect, or the fear of a ghost. But he says, in imagination, where fear does not quite rise to abject terror and is not discharged in action, the difference is much stronger. So for me, this is where I kind of reach my, um, the object of fascination for me, which is this notion of abject terror. And this is where we get into French post-structuralism, sorry. I swear, I swear, I cut out a whole section. I like, no one wants to hear this. Say, I'm take it out, take it out. Okay, but my personal research is really invested in this idea of abject and the abject horror. And I think that when we talk about fiction and cults, there's something extremely abject about the way that groups like this are depicted as operating. Um, so the person I'm going back to here is Julia Kristeva, who wrote this book called Powers of Horror, an essay on objection, which is impossible to read. I do not recommend it. Um, but I guess we read the Wikipedia home pages then. But as a professor, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> she explores the theory of horror, and she suggests this idea about the abject as a particular categorization of, of, of horror, um, one that is essentially like includes a kind of rejection of abhorrent selfhood. So she says the abject only has one quality. It's being opposed to yourself. So she's saying that things that are objective or uncanny. Their power to disturb us draws from their relation to the self, remaining outside of our cultural or knowable range of acceptable experiences. She says that it's 
basically the power of abject to disturb us comes from a sort of transgressive hybridity. She says, it is not a lack of cleanliness or health that causes abjection, but what disturbs identity, systems or order, what does not respect boundaries, positions, rules, the in-between, the ambiguous, the composite. <laughs> this is all very theoretical way of saying that if you kind of imagine um, like a discourse, like a, a religion, a community, whatever, is more or less as a sort of sphere, a bubble, the abject becomes those experiences that lie on the outside rim of what we know and what we understand. So they encompass anxieties, horrors, and suspicions that disrupt the pattern of the whole, things that can't be explained away by the structure. So, um, yes, killer clowns, right? The uncanniness of the um, smiling mask that discloses the nefarious purpose underneath. Abject is also something as simple as like mucus. Mucus is very objective because it's transgressive, it's hybrid, it's, it's me, but it's not me, right? It's in between. That's why gross things are always slimy, you know, in horror films, there's a reason for that. The slime is abjective. Um, abject horror is something like uh, the horror of a Tylenol uh, poisoner, right? It's lies, it's not something that we can understand, the horror of being uh, sh you know, shot during a robbery accidentally. It lies right on those outer rims of uncanny fears that exist in that kind of quagmire of strange evils that we can't explain away very simply. So this brings me to the question that I ask quite a lot in my research, which is what role does the abject play in fiction and in faith? Most fiction about cults explore, explores this idea of abject horror by flirting with those tropes that we've already learned to be positive, so things like loyalty, allegiance, or obedience. Fiction about cults kind of like wades into the abject and lets us splash around in, in that quagmire. The, the sort of doubts about those values. So fiction about cults, I think, is doing something really complicated. It's using our fears of the transgressive, of the abject, against us. It's showing how cults like pattern those fears in the wrong way. So when fiction describes like how it's wrong to put your um, faith in like a, a squid god or an electrical power, the inference is, as readers, we know the right way so that it automatically puts us in a socially <coughs> superior position where we uncritically get to peer into this landscape of horrible objectiveness, knowing that we're the ones who are right, that the cult's revelations are false, that their promises are hollow, but we know. So it explores this realm of objection by asking about the apocalyptic personal transformation. Who would be willing to forfeit the individuality and become a drone? Um, and that's where a lot of these fears about so-called brainwashing, um, brainwashing uh, come from. The, the idea that you could sort of be accidentally or deliberately reprogrammed to become uncanny. So fiction about cults asks what happens after the annihilation of the self. If the loss of your personal conscience always leads to manipulation, is it the very banality of, of evil? And that's where um, it's particularly satisfying, you know, those kind of narratives of those people who have maybe were once in a movement and have now left. And I'm totally guilty of consuming this as well. When my partner and I recently, um, we joined the same Kindle library, you know, like Kim Kindle family library, 
And all these titles appear like one woman's quest for, she survived. I'm like, no, no, don't read that. That's not for you. These are all, you know, I survived the cult stories that, you know, I'm guilty of finding really compelling because what it's doing is um, reassuring me that, the, that I'm on the right side. I love to read these stories. The abject has been disclosed. These people have been rehabilitated, right? So fiction about cults allows us to kind of flirt with that emotional vertigo of self-annihilation and submission. It captures people at their most hopeful and explores the allure of the marginal. It allows us to kind of explore the otherness, point a finger at the otherness, without turning the questioning finger against our own enculturated strangeness. So novels about cults are a tantalizing way for us as readers to satisfy that moment of possibility and of revelation, but they also explore existentially human vulnerabilities. So um, they sort of self-consciously allow us to think about our fears of illness and death and grief and loss um, and the strange glamour of kind of wanting to join the in-group even if they're really not a good group to be in. Fiction about cults explores these everyday vulnerabilities against these big backdrops of love, jealousy, grief, the struggle for justice and for answers. And the best fiction about cults lets us witness people wrestling with the cords of faith that bind them to each other and to their communities. Fiction about cults, I think, tells us a little bit about cults, but a lot about ourselves. I think it is essentially the best fiction about cults um, even the best fictional cults is a portrait of the extreme stuff of life, wrapped up in a mystery, <laughs> flavoured with a perverse justification for our own social anxieties. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Kelvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about the center, our initiatives, and our signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ccfwgr. You can also subscribe to our Rewrite Radio on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from our archives. Rewrite Radio.